0: It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it was a record-setting day today in the stock market. The S&P 500, the Russell 2000, the NASDAQ Composite, all hitting new record highs. In fact, the NASDAQ is getting close to 8,000. Couldn't quite get above 79.50 today. We closed at 79.45, uh, but still record territory. The Dow Jones was up 133, not quite a record, but I don't think the significant action is what's happening in the stock market. I think it's what happens in the foreign exchange markets with the dollar and what's happening in the gold market. The US dollar was broadly lower today. It didn't close below 95, but it barely held the 95 handle at 95.14. But we potentially put in a top uh, when we got just shy of 97. We had a think about a $22 rise today in the price of gold. Uh, gold up. Uh, well, I think by the settle now I'm looking at $20.60. I think is where it went out at 12:05:20. I think is the last trade. On the week, but back above 1200, and the catalyst for the rise in gold and the decline in the dollar, I believe, was the dovish speech given uh, by Jerome Powell today in Jackson Hole. And whether or not the speech is perceived as dovishly, as I believe it is, I think we're going to have to see if we get some follow through in the dollar and in the gold market next week. I think it is critical to see how the markets follow through to today's action. If I'm right, we could see a big move up in the price of gold next week and a big move down in the dollar. Remember, we got a lot of people who are short gold now for the first time since 2001, the hedge funds were net short gold. And I think they could get caught in a losing trade and have to scramble to buy back the gold that they sold. Also, lots of people are now loaded up long the dollar, short the emerging market currencies. But the, the impetus for this trade, the momentum, had to do with the bullish posture of the Fed and the anticipation that the Fed will continue to raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. But if what Jerome Powell said today causes traders to second-guess those assumptions and maybe dial back their expectations for rate hikes, maybe not necessarily the two rate hikes that everybody believes are coming uh, in the balance of 2018, but potentially the idea that there may be no rate hikes at all coming in 2019, that 2018 may be the end of it. And in fact, maybe we won't even get the December rate hike, I think to the extent that traders start to reprice the odds of future rate hikes. This could be a big move in the dollar, a big move in gold. And again, we got to see what happens because maybe this was a one day event. Uh, Maybe traders are not going to read into uh, Powell's comments what I think he meant. But Given the reaction that we had today, I think there is a reasonable chance that that is exactly the way the markets are going to take it. And I think they are very set up for this. I think we have so many people on the wrong side of this trade right now that it's a perfect time uh, for the market to swing the other way. Now, what exactly did Jerome Powell say that causes me and potentially a lot of other traders to now reassess uh, their outlook on what the Fed is likely to do? Uh, With monetary policy. Basically, what Powell said was, number one, that he sees no danger of the U.S. economy overheating and that he sees a low likelihood that inflation is going to move beyond the Fed's two percent goal. Setting aside the fact that it's already at about 3%, right? If you look at year-over-year CPI, it's 2.9. Year-over-year PPI, it's like 3.4. So we're already way beyond 2%. Yet according to Powell, uh, he sees no evidence that we're going to get above 2%. But more importantly, if you uh, go back and read the text, which I did, of Powell's speech, and of course, you know, he just delivers a written speech. He's not like me. He doesn't just wing it. Uh, you know, he he reads from a prepared uh, speech. And so every word is, is carefully, uh, you know, scripted. I mean, they're not going to go off the cuff, uh, given how the markets could react to, you know, an off-the-cuff comment. So I'm sure they they read these things and reread these things to make sure they don't send any signals that they don't intend. But if you go back and read what Powell said, he was worried and he spoke about prior instances Uh, particularly where Alan Greenspan, he credits Alan Greenspan for having the foresight not to raise rates more uh, in the face of evidence that there might be more inflation that he was holding off until he saw the whites of inflation's eyes and that that was the correct policy to keep the powder dry, to not to be too quick to just assume inflation is coming and run the risk of raising interest rates too much. Meanwhile, here we are, rates are only at 2%, right? And uh, Jerome Powell is afraid that the mistake the Fed might make is raising interest rates too much, when, if anything, the mistake is that they haven't raised them enough and that they lowered them too much. In fact, that's what Powell should have been criticizing Greenspan for, lowering rates and lo- and keeping them too low for too long. Instead, the mistakes that Powell thinks prior Fed chairman made was raising rates too much, was fighting an inflation boogeyman that didn't actually exist. And so what Powell is saying is that he's not going to do that. He is not going to err on being preemptive when it comes to stopping inflation, but that if, for some unexpected reason, inflation really spikes up well above what the Fed believes, well, then they will do uh, whatever is necessary uh, to rein it back in. So in other words, what Powell is saying is, we are not going to do anything to make sure that the inflation genie stays in the bottle. But if the inflation genie actually escapes the bottle, and we don't think that she's going to, we think the, the genie is happy hanging out in the bottle, but if for some reason she gets free, well, then we're going to do whatever it takes to get her back in. You know, Well, good luck with that because it's impossible. That's the whole idea. Once the inflation genie is out of the bottle, it's very difficult to get her back in there, especially given the vulnerability of the US economy. Because if the Fed waits until inflation is well above 2% or well above 3%, because it's already at 3%, and by the way, as all these tariffs are kicking in, it's gonna make it very hard for the Fed to really figure out exactly where the inflation rate is because you're gonna see such big price increases that are gonna result from the tariffs. And my guess is that the Fed is gonna look through that and the Fed is gonna say, well, you know, that's not really inflation. These are one-off numbers. This is just about the tariffs. It's not like these tariffs are going to be increased every single month. And so we're going to look through these price hikes as like a one-off thing. And so, you know, who knows how much higher these CPI numbers are going to get where the Fed is going to be able to say, well, it's not really inflation, it's the tariffs. So, you know, who knows how high inflation could really be before the Fed reluctantly admits that we have an inflation problem. And let's say by the time we have an inflation problem, inflation is 4 or 5%, even the way the Fed measures it. And now are they really going to do whatever it takes to get that genie back in the bottle? Because it would take massive rate hikes, a very aggressive Federal Reserve, and there's no way the economy can withstand that. I mean, in fact, the economy could already be in a recession, which is what my forecast is. I think that we're going to have stagflation. I think by by the time we have this high inflation, we're also going to have recession. Now, is the Fed going to do whatever it takes to put the inflation genie back in the bottle, even if it means exacerbating a recession that is already underway? Because we can certainly have inflation and recession at the same time. I mean, we've had it before, and I think we're going to have it again. But of course- Given the amount of debt that we have, if the Fed really jacked interest rates up to 7%, 8 9%, whatever it took, right, in order to rein in that inflation, not only would it cause another financial crisis, uh, but it would cause the U.S. government to either have to dramatically slash spending on things like Social Security and Medicare, dramatically increase taxes, even during a recession, or default on its bonds. Uh, So doing whatever it takes means, you know, basically economic Armageddon. So I don't believe that for a minute. I think that's all bark and no bite. And so to me, what Powell is saying is that the Fed is pretty much near the end of the rate hikes. And it doesn't really matter what happens to inflation or how high inflation gets from here. There's nothing that the Fed is going to do about it. And so this is exactly what you would want to hear if you were buying gold and exactly what you would not want to hear if you were short gold. And of course, this is going to undermine the dollar. This is going to be great for these emerging market currencies that have been beaten up on the idea that we're going to have a tight Fed that monetary policy is going to continue to be uh, uh, restrictive. It's not. It is going to remain highly accommodative because the Fed is afraid of uh, raising rates too much. Now, you can also read into these comments, is it possible that Jerome Powell was in fact influenced by Donald Trump? I mean, Donald Trump already publicly called out the Fed, criticized the Fed for having raised rates too much, said that we could use a little help from the Fed, that the Fed should be helping him to grow the economy, and maybe uh, those words uh, Are influencing the Fed now. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons that the Fed wants to err on the side of allowing the economy, quote unquote, to run hot and not be preemptive about taking uh, the punch bowl away. And especially now that the president, I went over in my last podcasts, the political problems that are accelerating. The one thing that Trump has to hang his hat on is the supposed success of his presidency, right? Trump said, how can you impeach a president who's doing such a great job? Well, his doing a great job is his boasts about how great the economy is. Well, obviously, if the Fed keeps raising rates and that puts that so-called great economy in jeopardy, that puts the president's presidency in jeopardy because now it emboldens his critics and maybe his friends will abandon him. So that puts more pressure on the Fed to play ball to try to keep this economy propped up. In fact, Trump actually said that if he was impeached, not even removed from office, but just impeached, that the stock market would crash and everyone would be poor, Uh, which to me, it really amounts to an admission by the president that this is still a bubble because if this was a healthy stock market, it could withstand an impeachment. But if Trump believes the stock market would crash if he was impeached, then he he still feels that this is a fat, big, fat, ugly bubble and that his impeachment is just one potential pin uh, that could uh, could prick it. But, you know, I do think that the American public is a lot closer to poverty uh, than than anybody imagines. I mean, clearly, I don't think the only thing standing between the American public and, and abject poverty is Donald Trump's presidency, even though he may believe that. Uh, I think what maybe has been standing between America and poverty has been the Chinese and the rest of the world willing uh, to uh, give us their stuff for free, exchange the goods that they produce for the money that we print. And, you know, all of that is in jeopardy now. And so, yes, it's possible that the American public, everyone's going to be poor, but not for the reasons that Donald Trump thinks, for reasons uh, that absolutely nobody uh, is concerned about, but nonetheless are looming, you know, f- far larger than anybody understands. But it wasn't just um, Powell's comments that made me think that the Fed is, you know, pretty much done or close to the end of the tightening cycle. I listened to an interview with Jim Bullard. It was Steve Leisman who was interviewing him, although other people from CNBC were thrown in questions. But if you listen to what Jim Bullard said, he basically argued that 2% interest rates is not the same thing today as it would have been in the past, meaning that the 2% number is not as low as you think. And what he was arguing was that interest rates have been falling, right, for a long time. And that so the natural tendency... For rates has been to decline. And so that for the Fed now to normalize rates, it does not mean bringing them back to what was normal, let's say in 2007, because what's normal in 2018 is not what was normal in 2007 because of the continuation of the downtrend in interest rates. So what he's basically saying is, look, We're not going anywhere near where we used to be. Uh, We're just following this path of lower rates. But what, of course, Bullard doesn't seem to want to understand is the reason that rates have been going lower and lower and lower is because the Fed has been driving them lower and has been able to get away with it. And one of the main reasons that the Fed has been walking rates down and trying to keep rates artificially low is because of the explosion in the amount of debt that we have. There is no way that we can handle the amount of debt if we still had interest rates that were at levels that existed five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So the only thing that makes it possible to handle the debt, and when I mean handle, I'm not talking about repayment. Repayment is completely impossible. I'm just talking about servicing the debt that we have, not actually paying it off. And the only way that we can service it is if interest rates continue to go lower and lower and lower. But the problem is the Fed is not going to be able to control rates indefinitely. In fact, I think today the U.S. yield curve, right, the difference between the two-year and the 10-year is now under the difference in Japan. I don't know if that's ever happened before, that we have now have a tighter spread than in Japan when you look at the the yield curve, but there's a limit to how long the Federal Reserve is going to be able to keep interest rates moving down. At some point, they're going to blow out and interest rates are going to spike and there's not going to be a thing that the Federal Reserve can do about it. And that's when all hell is going to break loose. But his comments about 2% being close to normal, to me, you know, we're about at the end of the cycle. And in fact, The best question that he was asked was by Joe Kernan in the studio, who basically asked the right question, but, you know, didn't press for the right answer. Because Joe Kernan mentioned the fact that there are people, of course, he doesn't mention me, but, you know, people, you know, including me, but other people, I'm sure, but just not to the extent that I do it. But people are saying that, oh, you know, we don't know if the Fed has been successful. We won't know that until they completely unwind the policy. You know, so can we write the history books now and say that this has been a success or would that be premature? Might we have to update it? In fact, that is the question that led um, Bullard to talk about this 2 percent not being as low as it used to because of the downward trajectory in interest rates. Although it was funny that uh, when Kernan asked uh, Bullard that question, he actually laughed. And so maybe he realizes uh, that Kernan is right. Uh, that this thing is going to end a disaster, and anybody who is claiming premature victory now is, is is wrong. Because you know the easy thing to do is to is to you know lower rates to zero and blow up your balance sheet. The impossible thing is to normalize them. That's why they have to redefine the new normal as being much lower uh, than it used to be. And of course, you know they're not going to be able to you know unwind the balance sheet. By any significant amount. I mean, if, you know, it's going to be a, a small amount before they have to reverse. In fact, looking at today, we got more bad economic news. We got the durable goods number. Uh, that was a big miss, came out say the lowest in six months. Um, we got more numbers that came out uh, yesterday. We got a big miss in the Kansas City Fed. New home sales you know, I think dropped to a six-month low or nine-month low. That followed. I mentioned on my last podcast the drop in existing home sales. As a matter of fact, the macroeconomic surprise index, right, which measures all the economic data that comes out and relative to expectations, and it just hit a 14-year low, meaning that the data is missing estimates. By the most, it's missed in 14 years. Now, of course, you know there's a lot of optimism out there so that's one of the reasons that there's so many misses is because there's so much optimism but what this shows you is the optimism is unfounded yet you know you still have these ideas that oh this economy is booming in fact the atlanta feds model came out today and they increased their estimate for uh q3 gdp to 4.6 percent right Now, you know, it was 4.1 in Q2, which personally I think is going to get revised lower. But you know what? Today, the New York Fed, they have their own GDP nowcast. They went down to 1.96. I mean, that's a huge difference. I mean, you got the Atlanta Fed looking for GDP growth more than twice what the New York Fed is. I mean, are are, are these guys looking at the same numbers? I mean, how could two uh, Fed banks be so different in what their forecasts are. But nonetheless, I mean, my money would be on the New York Fed, although maybe by prices rights rules, they'll both lose because maybe they're both going to end up being over. I think this economy is decelerating, although I do think that there is a lot of inflation that is being underreported. So maybe we will get the 2% number only because there's a lot more inflation, uh, and therefore we get, you know, a nominal number that doesn't get deflated enough. Uh, But clearly, uh, the economy is slowing down, and nobody wants to admit that, I think even the Fed is tacitly admitting it, even though in his speech, Powell still talked about how great the economy is and how there's no sign that it's going to slow down. Although, if there's no sign it's going to slow down, what makes him so sure it's not going to overheat? I mean, the way these Keynesians look at things, I mean, if the economy is booming and unemployment is really this low, there's no chance that uh, we're going to overheat. Now, one of the things I think that, uh, that Bullard said too, and I, he's right for the wrong reason, uh, he said that he, he's not worried about low unemployment causing inflation because he doesn't believe in the Phillips curve. And I agree with him. Low unemployment is not going to cause inflation, especially because it's not really low, you know, if you measure it properly. But even if it was low, low unemployment doesn't cause inflation. That's a bunch of nonsense. Low unemployment, people working helps to keep prices down. Right? The reason that we're going to have a lot of inflation is not because we have low unemployment, even if we had it. We're going to have a lot of inflation because the Fed created it already. The money supply growth is inflation. The credit growth was inflation. And the inflation is going to migrate from the financial assets to the real economy, regardless of the level of employment. That's already baked in the cake. So basically, Bullard is wrong. We're going to have more inflation, but it's not because of low unemployment. He's right about that, but he's wrong to not understand Uh, the amount of inflation that the Federal Reserve has already put into the pipeline, and it's just a function of the lag uh, before it it really rains down on us like a tsunami. Now, you know, I criticize Trump quite a bit. I have been recently on this podcast, but I want to give him props here for something that he tweeted out the other day, and my reaction was, it's about time. And, you know, I don't know why I didn't talk about this on one of my earlier podcasts. I know I thought about talking about it, but never seemed to get to it. So it's now it's a good time since the president has uh, put it on the radar. And I think this followed a news report on Fox News, did a story on South Africa and Ramaphosa, the leader of uh, the ANC in South Africa, and their new land reform, right? Land reform is code for theft, right? Where they're stealing the land that belongs to white farmers and they're giving it out to, you know, Uh, blacks, right? And this is supposedly land reform. And apparently, too, they're following the rule of law because they totally changed the law in order to follow it. They they changed the constitution to basically legalize this theft. And now that theft is legal, they're claiming they're not breaking the law. Well, the law is immoral. The law is really unconstitutional. And of course, there is a lot of violence now uh, in, in South Africa, particularly violence against Uh, A lot of white farmers, a lot of white farmers have been murdered. Now, obviously, the government is not actively encouraging this. In fact, I know they are condemning the violence, but the violence is there nonetheless. But what the South African wants to do to white farmers is violence. Even if they're not killing them, if they're stealing their land, that is a violent act. And if you are going to vilify white farmers and try to scapegoat them uh, for economic problems and target them to have their land confiscated, well, you are basically sowing the seeds of other types of violence. I mean, once you say that, okay, theft is okay, well, murder, all right, well, that's another crime too. If theft is okay, then why not murder, right? I mean, so this is the slippery slope when you don't maintain uh, a, a, a moral compass, when you don't have a rigid defense of individual liberty. If you're not going to defend private property, well then how do you defend life? I'm consistent, I want to protect people's life and their property, but once you draw a line and you say, well, property is fair game, we can steal that, well then you're blurring the line, and so you are in effect encouraging uh, the type of violence uh, that is taking place. But Donald Trump finally wanted to tweet something about, hey, I'm gonna look into this. Uh, what's going on in South Africa, confiscating land owned by white farmers. And, you know, the RAND immediately sold off, which was already under pressure. But all of a sudden you had a reaction. Uh, South Africa uh, came out and, oh, this is terrible, like this is racist. And, you know, a lot of the press was against Trump and in favor of South Africa. And, you know, Trump is completely right to be calling out Uh, uh, Ramaphosa and the ANC. I mean, it's the press that has a double standard. I mean, the press is a bunch of racists. I mean, I am not saying that apartheid was was, was a great form of government. I'm not going to defend apartheid, but I can tell you that what they have now is worse than apartheid, that what the ANC is doing to South Africa is far worse than what apartheid did. I think even, even for Blacks, I think most blacks are worse off today under the ANC, under black rule, than they were under, uh, under apartheid. I mean, you could look at all kinds of statistics. You could look at life expectancy, which has plunged for blacks. Uh, if you look at crime, which has exploded in the black community. In fact, South Africa is now the rape capital of the world. You have more women raped I guess, per capita in South Africa than anywhere else in the world. And most of these women getting raped are black. Um, And in fact, before uh, the ANC came to power, right, when it was uh, apartheid, uh, blacks from all over sub-Saharan Africa tried to get into South Africa. That's where all the blacks wanted to go, because that's where the opportunity was. That's where the better jobs were. So, I mean, how bad could it have been for blacks if blacks that weren't in South Africa wanted to go to South Africa. Clearly, even if it was bad in South Africa, it was even worse in these other African countries that they wanted to get out of. Yet, it was only South Africa that we were boycotting. South Africa was getting all the criticism for how badly it treated blacks, even though other countries treated blacks much worse. The difference was the other countries that were mistreating blacks were run by blacks. So... The media, governments didn't care about black people that were being oppressed by other black people. They only were upset if black people were oppressed by white people. But now that you have uh, the ANC in power, and again, by most objective measures, right now, oh, I, I wanted to finish my point. Now, you don't have all these blacks trying to get into South Africa. You got blacks leaving South Africa. You got whites leaving South Africa, they have an emigration problem now. They used to have a lot of immigrants, now they have a lot of emigration. And, but nobody says anything. The media is quiet, world leaders are quiet, nobody cares about how much worse things have gotten economically in South Africa, because now that the oppressors are black and not white, well, everybody is okay with it. Which shows you that everybody is racist. If you only care about oppression, when it's white people that are oppressing blacks, but you couldn't give a damn about it when it's blacks oppressing blacks or blacks oppressing whites. That is a double standard. That is hypocrisy. And at least Trump, and I want to applaud Trump for actually having the guts because everybody's afraid, oh, you're, you're a racist. How dare you condemn anything that somebody who's black wants to do? Because if you say that somebody who is black and if they want to do something, well, that makes you a racist for pointing out that what they're doing is wrong. No, what makes you a racist is when you refuse to point out that somebody is doing something wrong just because they're black. You can't give somebody a pass because they're black. That's racist. If somebody is doing something wrong, it doesn't matter what their skin color is. You got to call them out. I said that about Trump before when people said he was a racist for calling uh, some black people stupid. If he thinks they're stupid, he should call them stupid. I mean, because I mean, otherwise he's being racist. He calls white people stupid when he thinks they're stupid. Why should he treat blacks any differently from the way he treats whites? Well, at least Trump wants to hold Ramaphosa uh, to the same standard that anybody else would hold him to if he were white. But I wanna go from the sublime to the ridiculous and finish up this podcast by going over a story that, I mean, you're not even gonna believe it until you research it online yourself because that's how ridiculous it is. So Tom Friedan was the head of the CDC under Barack Obama and he resigned uh, when Trump became president. Anyway, the guy is 57 years old. And apparently about 10 months ago, He had a dinner party at his house and he invited a number of his friends. One of them was a woman, 55 year old woman, who he had known for about 20 years. And apparently, you know, at the end of the night, and I guess they had some alcohol with dinner. Maybe they drink some wine. I don't know how kind of buzz these guys had. But at the end of the night, they all say goodbye. And apparently, you know, he gives this woman a hug. And, you know, Al Frankenstein, his hand goes down to her ass. Right. So he puts his hand on her on her butt, right? Now, I don't know if she said anything at the time. You know, if she said, hey, you know, what are you doing? She slapped him in the face. I have no idea. But after she left, apparently, she went down to the police in Brooklyn. And she reported what he did to the police. And he was just arrested. Uh, and... He was basically charged with three crimes, three crimes, forcible touching, third degree sexual abuse, and second degree harassment. Now, I haven't researched the potential, uh, you know, how, what the fine is, what the jail time is. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of jail time associated with these, with these uh, crimes, uh, but they actually arrested him. I saw a photograph on CNBC's article they had two detectives, plainclothes detectives. You can see their badges. They were leading the guy off in handcuffs. His hands were cuffed behind his back. And you got each of these guys holding one of this, one of his arms. They're taking him to jail to, I guess, book him and read him his rights. You probably already read him his rights. I mean, why did they cuff him? I mean, I guess they're afraid that he's going to grab their ass, right? They don't want to get their asses grabbed by this, you know, ass grabber. and And so they cuffed him. So they could protect themselves. And now they're taking him down to jail. I mean, I read this thing. I'm like, what is this? This has got to be a a joke. Maybe there's got to be more to the story. I mean, you touch one ass and you get three crimes. I mean, how can this be? So I'm, I'm reading on the Internet and trying to see if, you know, there's more to the story. Right. I mean, what did he do? But apparently there is no more to the story. That is all he did. He put his hand on a woman's butt. Now, I mean, we don't even know if he did it intentionally, right? I mean, maybe he did it accidentally. But, you know, even if he did intentionally put his hand on her butt, so what? I mean, is it inappropriate? Maybe. I mean, I don't know what the circumstances were, but let's say it was inappropriate. Well, at most, he deserves a slap in the face. That's it. It is not a crime. This is ridiculous. I can't even believe that the police took this seriously. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, you're, you're a policeman, right? And you're sitting in your office, and in comes this woman. You know, she's a 55 years old woman. And she's like, oh, I want to report a crime. All right, oh, what happened to you? Well, this guy put his hand on my, on my butt. Really? Uh, where were you at the time? And were you just walking down the street? I mean, did the guy assault you? No, no, I was at his house. It was a dinner party. Oh, so you knew the guy? Yeah, I've known him. Well, how long do you know him? Oh, about 20 years. Oh, you've known him for 20 years. A- has he grabbed your ass often? No, no, this is the first time. So, he, you know, basically was waiting 20 years and he picked this dinner party full of people to, 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 to put his hand on your ass? Well, I mean, he was hugging me goodbye, but his hand was on my ass. All right, so, so what? I mean, what do you want us to do? Go arrest him! Put him in jail! Why? Before he grabs somebody else's butt? I mean, is this guy a threat to society now that he's put his hand on somebody's butt? Apparently he's married, he has two kids. Right. I mean, if this guy was, you know, a serial ass grabber, I'm sure this would not be the first time he'd do it. He waited till he was 55. And hey, if you're going to grab some ass, I mean, why grab the ass of a 55 year old woman? I mean, look, I mean, there's some 55 year old women that are probably in nice shape and probably have some nice butts. But I mean, I'm sure he'd be going younger. That was uh, how he got his kicks, he'd, you know, and, and I'm sure, too, if they. You know, they looked into it. Hey, you know, let's, uh, who is this guy? Tom Frieden. It must be a real bum. No, no, he used to be the head of the CDC. He was a high-powered government official. Oh, what does he have, a rap sheet? Does he have any priors? Uh, Nope, nothing. No ass-grabbing in the past? Nope, nope. This is the first, his, the first allegation. They went and arrested the guy? Arrested him? Like he's a criminal? I mean, I can imagine the guy gets convicted of putting his hand on, on, on someone's butt. And I, I doubt he actually, you know, really grabbed it and, and, and you know, squeezed it. I mean, he probably just, you know, put his hand there. I mean, when again, when Al Franken did that, he wasn't charged with a crime. Yeah, he had to resign his Senate seat, but that was because there was a bunch of other women that came out. Now, I don't know if there's going to be a Me Too. I don't know how many other women are now going to come up and say, yeah, that Tom Friedan, he put his hand on my butt too, uh, just like uh, with, uh, with with Franken. But imagine the guy actually gets convicted uh, for this, I mean, he's in jail, and the guy in his, his cellmate's gonna say, Hey, Tom, so you know, what are you in for? Oh, uh, ass grabbing. It's like, you know, he's probably gonna say, Wow, how many asses did you grab? Uh, just one. I mean, this whole thing is a joke. Does the Brooklyn Police Department have nothing better to do with their cr- time? Don't they actually have real crimes going on in Brooklyn that need prosecution? Right. I mean, they're going to waste the city's resources charging this guy, having a trial so that they can charge him or, 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 or you know, he's going to have to prove whether or not he he put his hand on her butt or not. I mean, I mean, even if you admit to it, yes, I put my hand on her butt. What are you going to do? Arrest me? Apparently put you in jail. How much is it going to cost to keep this guy in jail? What is the purpose to make sure he doesn't grab any other woman's butt? You know, that's why he has to be kept behind bars to keep other women's butts safe from being patted. You know, and, and think about this. If just patting somebody's butt is, you know, criminal assault. And again, I don't want to make light of actual sexual assault, right? Because there is real sexual assault, uh, real harassment, forcible touching. I can see where this could be a forcible touch. How is it forcible? I mean... Just because you touch somebody's butt and they don't know that you're going to do it, it doesn't mean that you forced it. I mean, forcible touching to me is like I actually pin somebody down right, and, 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 and touch them. Not that I just you know, put my hand on their butt and, and that's it. And, you know, and then, you know, I mean, you would think that it would be all molesting, that he touched her, you know, he went for second base, third base, he did all kinds of stuff. I mean, to say, oh, it's forcible touching because he was hugging me goodbye and his hand went on my butt. You know, third degree sexual abuse. Where's the sex? Where's the abuse? He patted her butt. I mean, did he do it as a a means of harassing her? It was probably a gesture of affection. Or I don't know. Or maybe after 20 years of friendship, he wanted to let this 55-year-old girl that he was interested in her. And so he patted her on the butt to see what her reaction would be. I don't know. But this whole thing is completely ridiculous. But if patting people on the butt is sexual assault, forcible touching, and harassment, what about the NFL? I mean, why don't they arrest all the players? I mean, how many times do guys on the sidelines pat other players on the butt when they, you know, catch a pass or they make a good tackle and they're running off the field and everybody is slapping everybody on the butt? I mean, I don't see anybody getting permission uh, to slap people on the butt. So are all these guys criminals? Can every NFL player who gets slapped on the butt by a teammate just file a charge? They're going to come in there and arrest them and handcuff them and take them away and, and charge him with, you know, three three accounts of whatever they are, felonies or misdemeanors? I'm not even sure. I mean, I'm wondering, do you actually have to be the victim? Can you just observe the crime in order to report it? I mean, would it be okay if the fans, right, next time you're watching a football game and you see – A player slap another player on the butt. Just call nine one one. Call the police and say I want to report a crime. I just saw three crimes. I mean, this stuff is ridiculous. I mean, all times times of situations exist where you know guys do something you know proactively with a woman just you know to kind of test the waters. You know, I, I I mentioned this before. I mean, what about guys going to the prom with a date? You're taking a slow dance your hand goes down you grab her butt is that a crime that three crimes you're going to jail because she grabbed someone's butt you know put your hand down there you moved your hand from the nap of her back down to her her backside you know just to see if she'd leave it there or push it away right i mean as i said that's that's you know slow dancing 101 that's the whole goal of the slow dance is to see how low you can get your hand and it's up to the girl to tell you you know when to stop but is now all that going to be a crime i mean what about kissing? You go to Europe, right? Everybody kisses everybody. I mean, how do they say hello? I mean, they give you two kisses on the cheek in most countries. I guess that's six crimes, right? Because three crimes for each kiss. Of course, unless you go uh, to the Netherlands where they kiss three times, well, then you got nine crimes. I mean, we have gone off the deep end here in trying to define, right, every single act as being assault, as being harassment, as, as, as being warranted Uh, for criminal prosecution. And when you do that, you actually water down the real meaning of serious crimes if you're going to try to take everything and put it on the same level. So I think women are doing themselves an incredible disservice uh, when they are trying to, uh, you know, apply these laws the way they're doing it. And I can't even believe, again, that the police department even took this seriously. But maybe there's some kind of crazy rule now. We've gotten so over the top with this Me Too stuff that this type of stuff actually has to be taken seriously, which means pretty much that any woman could blackmail any man anytime by threatening to you know, call the police and say that you know he touched my butt. I mean, even if you didn't touch your butt, how do you prove you didn't? I mean, it's just her word against his, but hey, maybe you did. I mean, maybe you did it accidentally. I mean, the world has gone completely, completely crazy. Again, you know, everybody is making a big deal about, you know, the, uh, the flags and the national anthem. And are the NFL players, you know, kneeling? If they're kneeling, they're disrespecting uh, the national anthem. Well, what about the fact that they're all committing sexual assault and sexual harassment by patting each other on the butt? So that, that should be the next big uh, NFL Controversy, right it should be all the fans calling up the police to report rampant sexual abuse taking place right there in broad daylight you know on in, in uh, football stadiums all around the country. but one final thing I almost forgot I wanted to mention just in case anyone wants to buy it i 've got a RV that you know I kind of got into these RVs when I ran for Senate. I had an RV, and then when the campaign was over, instead of just selling it, I ended up trading it in for a nicer one so i 've got this Monaco Signature Commander. It's a 2004, uh, 45-foot RV. It's sitting on my property in Connecticut, and I'm I'm rarely there now. You know, I'm living in uh, Puerto Rico, and so I have no real use for this RV. And I didn't even use it that much when I had it. I mean, that's why it's only got about 65,000 miles on this Detroit diesel engine that it has. Probably the worst thing uh, about the RV is it hasn't been used very much, uh, in the last few years. So it likely needs some tune-ups, uh, maybe probably a few new, um, you know, uh, tubes or whatever you got to put in there probably needs new tires. I don't think they've been changed in about five years, but other than that, it looks like it's brand new. It's in great condition. So if you happen to be in the market for a, a used RV, I mean, otherwise I'm probably just going to, uh, you know, maybe put it on consignment somewhere or sell it uh, to a wholesaler. But I thought I'd put it out there because I've got it. If anybody wants to own Peter Schiff's RV, it is for sale. If you want to buy it, um, I don't know, $110,000. It sold new for $650,000 in 2004. So obviously brand new ones probably cost a lot more than that now. Uh, it's like new. Uh, so uh, I think it's if you want an RV, this is a great one to buy. If you're interested in buying it or just make me an offer. We'll see how many I get. Send me an email. Schiff at Europac.net is my email. Schiff at Europac.net. Uh, and if you're interested, we'll send you some photographs of the RV. If you want to see it again, I got it in Connecticut. And if I don't sell it relatively soon, I guess I'll sell it to a dealer or do something. Because again, it's just sitting on my property uh, in, in Connecticut. And uh, I just assume uh, get it off the property before the winter. So, if you're interested again, shift at europack.net.